Welcome to the 2022 Frederick Newman Memorial Lectures. And we are particularly honored to welcome those of you who are watching online. This lectureship was established in 1984 by Dr. Edith Newman in memory of her husband. Dr. Frederick Newman was born into a Jewish family in Vienna, Austria in 1899. During his studies, he was deeply influenced by Soren Kierkegaard's work, converted to Christianity, and committed to a vocation of Christian service. Ordained into the British Congregational Ministry, he and his wife came to the United States after World War II, where Dr. Newman served as the pastor of the Bushwick Avenue Congregational Church in Brooklyn until his death in 1967. Tonight, we are delighted to have Dr. Ryan Lamoth as our Noman lecturer this evening. Dr. Lamoth was supposed to be with us in the spring of 2020, but this lecture was one of the early casualties of the pandemic. We are pleased that he graciously postponed until he could be with us tonight. And also a warm welcome to his wife, Cindy, who is here with us this evening as well. Dr. Lamoth presently serves as professor of pastoral care and counseling at St. Meinrad School of Theology in Indiana. He has served in this position for more than 25 years. A well-respected author, Dr. Lamoth has published more than 160 articles and book reviews, as well as six books and two edited volumes. His recent book, A Radical Theology for Anthropocene Era, Thinking and Being Otherwise, was published last November by Whip and Stock. It addresses and confronts key problems and questions of political theology while proposing a radical political theology for our own time. Dr. Lamoth holds the uh, Bachelor of Science in Chemistry from the United States Military Academy at West Point, a Master's of Divinity in Theology and Pastoral Care from the University of Notre Dame, and a PhD in religion and psychology from Vanderbilt University. Dr. Lamoth's research and scholarship focuses on psychoanalysis, psychology of religion, pastoral counseling, pastoral theology, and pastoral political theology. He's a leader in his field who brings years of expertise and study in pastoral care and counseling. At the end of his remarks, he'll take time for questions and enter into some conversation with us. Would you now join me in welcoming Dr. Ryan Lamoth. Well, I'm delighted to be here after three years. Um, I told, uh, I don't know if Jay Paul remembers this, but I, I told him, I think it was after getting invited here, 
and said, well, you know, I'm a little anxious being a rube from Southern Indiana coming here. And he said, all I had to do was mention Bart 10 times and, and I would be accepted. I was a little confused because I thought that Lisa was the smarter of the two Simpsons, which tells you how much I know about Bart. And actually, this goes about 35 minutes or so. Um, <clears throat> and I wanted to kind of also have time, not just so much for question and answers, but for some conversation. Uh, as you're aware, the discourse regarding climate change has shifted over the last few years to climate emergency. Rising seas, desertification, massive floods, enormous forest fires, and declining insect and fish populations not only continue, but are getting worse as temperatures rise. Naturally, many of us are primarily concerned about the effects of climate change on existent and not yet existent human beings. But famed biologist E.O. Wilson estimates that half of the known species will be extinct by the end of this century. This mass extinction event is referred to as the Anthropocene Age, a term coined by scientists Paul Crutzen and Edward Stormer about two decades ago, indicating that human beings are the cause of this sixth extinction event. Undermining a biodiverse Earth threatens not only millions of species, but the very existence of human beings. The possible, if not likely, reality that the Earth will be uninhabitable for human beings and millions of other species raises, in my view, a question about how we do the work of theology. While theologies raise questions about God, in the Anthropocene age, I want to suggest that the fundamental task of theologians and communities of faith is addressing the ethical and political question, how shall we dwell together? Indeed, I would go so far as to claim that theologies, more often than not, are tacitly concerned about answering this question, though usually in exclusionary ways. Let me add that when it comes to the Anthropocene age, the we in this question is inclusive. By this, I mean that the answers to this question concern all human beings, other species, and the Earth itself. The Earth, as Terry Eagleton notes, is the first condition of our existence. Just as a side, I'm not going to be going quote, uh, I'm just going to repeat so it gets awkward sometimes, quote unquote. So I'm just going to. Uh, go that way the rest of the time. A biodiverse earth is a very material question, merit, material condition for the question of dwelling and its myriad answers. There's one other point to make here. If theologians and communities of faith want to be part of the public political discourse around issues associated with climate change, then in my view, we need to bring to the table our answers to the question of dwelling. Put differently, the notion of dwelling is not only an interdisciplinary concept, it is also transdisciplinary, which in my view necessarily includes theology. In the time that remains, I want to briefly identify some of the psychosocial and political contours of the notion of dwelling before turning to the issue of sovereignty as it pertains to human dwelling. There are many possible routes one can take in exploring this question. The reason I have selected the concept of sovereignty is that, as I hope to make clear, sovereignty, whether understood theologically or politically, has been and is a foundational problem in our dwelling in the world. 
which the Anthropocene age reveals. I conclude with a brief discussion of a theology of dwelling that rejects or renders inoperative the notion of a sovereign God, and more importantly, a sovereign humanity. In making sovereignty inoperative, we may identify inclusive, caring ways of dwelling on this earth that we share for time with all other human beings and other species. Now to dwelling. <clears throat> to dwell is a verb that means to live, reside, inhabit, or be domiciled. The verb presupposes the noun, dwelling, residence, home, house. Whether as a verb or noun, dwelling connotes living with others. As Helmut Plessner writes, dwelling as belonging to a people is an essential trait of the human, like being able to say, I and you. Of course, there are a small percentage of human beings who dwell alone, physically and sometimes psychologically, in the sense of being profoundly alienated. Nevertheless, the very coming into existence for human beings means being thrown into a particular ethos of a polis, wherein questions of dwelling are lived. Infants, in other words, first dwell in the womb before being unhoused, emerging within the social political dwelling of their parents. The question, how shall we dwell together, in other words, is lived long before a child or an adult can answer the question. How will I dwell in this world with these proximate and distant persons as well as more than human species? To continue with the psychosocial development view, good enough parents, consistent, caring, personal attunements to their children's assertions can be understood as foundational for children's embodied experiences of being at home in the world. Naturally, these early embodied relational experiences of dwelling are organized semiotically, not semantically. They become, to use Christopher Bolas's term, unthought knowns of lived experiences of belonging, which eventually become part of a semantic construction, constructions of experiences of dwelling. A point to stress here is that pre-symbolic embodied experiences of dwelling exist before and later become part of the ego or the I. There's another part of this developmental story to flesh out with regard to dwelling. Eric Erickson believed that the first tasks of the parent-child couple in their speaking and acting together is navigating trust-mistrust. If all goes well enough, Children develop a semiotic or unconscious pre-reflective sense of trust, which can be understood as being at home in the world. Stated differently, experiences of trust, which also depend on parents' relational repairs, enables children to be vulnerable or open to parents' ministrations and to be dependent. I'm sure many of you know children who have been traumatized, leaving them to struggle to feel at home in the world, often for the rest of their lives. Trauma occurs at the point of vulnerability and dependency, tagging both with intolerable anxiety and leaving people to be unhoused and psychologically and socially. Now, I want to build on Erickson's view of mistrust and trust by turning to H. Richard Niebuhr's view of faith, which he says is belief, disbelief, trust, distrust, loyalty, disloyalty. In terms of early development, these dialectical pairs of relational faith are dependent on the parent's consistent care, semiotically organized, and serves as a foundational feature of human dwelling. If all goes well enough, 
The earliest organizations of embodied relational faith accompany a sense that the world is good and one can be at home in the world with others. Closely associated with the dynamics of faith and embodied relational experiences of dwelling uh, <clears throat> are senses of self-esteem, self-respect, and self-confidence, which are necessary for the exercise of their nascent agency in speaking and acting together, in dwelling together. I will return to this later, but now for let me state that the parent's consistent care entails recognition of the children as persons, unique, inviolable, valued, responsive subjects. This personal recognition and treatment give rise to the child's sense of singularity, or what I'm translating as self-esteem, self-respect, and self-confidence, which are inextricably a part of their agency that is integral to dwelling with others. These early embodied relational experiences of dwelling are pre-political in the sense that infants or young children are not aware of and do not participate in public political spaces of speaking and acting together. This said, the collective narratives and rituals of a particular polis, which answers the question of dwelling, are inextricably part of the parents' own ways of being in the world which naturally shape their interactions with their children. Listen to political activist Ruby Sales' comments about her family. I grew up in the heart of Southern apartheid, and I am not saying that I didn't realize that it existed, but our parents were spiritual geniuses who created a world and a language where the notion that I was inadequate or inferior or less than never touched my consciousness. I grew up believing that I was a first-class human being and a first-class person. And our parents were spiritual geniuses who were able to shape a counterculture of black folk religion that raised us from disposability to being essential players in society. Ruby's parents lived in a polis where, the politi where political dwelling for African-Americans meant dealing with social, economic, and political apparatuses of humiliation and marginalization from which they sought to protect Ruby. Positively stated, Ruby's parents and their community provided good enough care and faith such that she developed self-esteem, self-confidence, and self-respect and faith that were necessary for her political agency, an agency for speaking and acting together. In terms of the question of dwelling, Ruby felt a sense of being at home in the world and in the polis, despite apparatuses of discipline or disciplinary regimes that sought to politically unhouse her and other African Americans. There's a great deal more to say about dwelling, both pre-politically and politically, but let me highlight the main points so I can move to issues of sovereignty. Early embodied relational experiences of dwelling with others in the world emerge within parent-child spaces of speaking and acting together. Parents' good enough care in these spaces is necessary for the children's sense of trust, which makes possible vulnerability and dependency that, is a company, that accompanies embodied relational experiences of self-esteem, self-confidence, and self-respect. All of this can be seen as embodied relational experiences of being at home with others. Parental interactions, I noted, are naturally shaped by narratives and practices of a particular ethos and polis in which they dwell. That is, the polis's ethos comprises answers to the question of dwelling 
or how shall we dwell together? Children gradually internalize and make use of the polis symbol, symbol system in learning to dwell with others in public political spaces. To dwell politically then means ideally possessing self-esteem, self-confidence, and self-respect necessary for the agency in speaking and acting together, that is, in dwelling with others. Now let me turn to sovereignty. <clears throat> By and large, Western political philosophies and theologies are concerned about sovereignty, and they themselves serve as apparatuses that produce, maintain, and legitimate various iterations of sovereignty, as well as the attending belief, or more accurately, illusion, that sovereignty is existentially or ontologically necessary for human dwelling. Political philosopher Wendy Brown, surveying classical theorists of modern sovereignty, such as Thomas Hobbes, Jean Bodin, and Carl Schmitt, argues that sovereignty's indispensable features include supremacy, no higher power, perpetuity, no term limits, decisionism, no boundedness by or submission to the law, absolutism and completeness, sovereignty cannot be probable or partial, non-transferability, sovereignty cannot be conferred without canceling itself, and specialized jurisdiction or territoriality. The idea of supremacy <clears throat> or no higher power and decisionism can also be understood in terms of what Carl Schmitt called the state of exception. The sovereign is the one who decides on the exception. This means the sovereign, who is sovereign precisely because of the juridical reality of the state, possesses the power to suspend the law, but does not abolish the law. Schmidt stated that because the state of exception is always different from anarchy and chaos, in a juridical sense, an order still exists in it, even if it's not a juridical order. Put another way, the state of exception is not a dictatorship, but a space devoid of law, in which all legal determinations are deactivated. Supreme power, decisionism, state of exception, absolutism, and non-transferability have clear theological roots. As Carl Schmitt argued, all significant concepts of the modern theory of the state are secularized theological concepts, which includes the idea of sovereignty. So if we turn to scripture, the issue of sovereignty vis-a-vis -vis human dwelling is evident throughout. God is sovereign over all creation, setting aside natural laws to enact miracles and conduct horrific political violence without consequences or remorse. God is sovereign over the chosen people as affirmed by Gideon. When asked by the elders to be their sovereign, Gideon proclaims, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Later, we learn that the desire to have a sovereign or to be ruled over by a king continued. The elders of Israel later asked Samuel to appoint for us a king to govern us like other nations. God commanded Samuel to go to the people and warn them of the consequences of having a human as their sovereign. Of course, uh, they accepted what he said, but decided they wanted a sovereign anyway. God concedes, and Samuel's predictions come true. As Samuel predicted, a human levi Leviathan is able to enact the state of exception 
and rules through subordination and subjugation. But the elders were adamant. Now, there are several points I want to highlight about sovereignty. First, there is no such thing as a sovereign. Whether we're talking about human beings or God. By this, I mean that the sovereign necessarily has a sovereign class or classes and attending apparatuses that support and maintain, in this case, the king's supreme power. Second, supreme power and the state of exception are, as Giorgio Agaben argues, founded in political violence or threat of violence, which is not subject to the laws and therefore exceeds the notion of justice. An illustration will help here. The pharaoh dies, and the next pharaoh subjugates the people, the Israelites, who cry out to their sovereign god. The pharaoh, who is sovereign, and its people experience devastating political violence, so that the sovereign and sovereign classes will submit to God's demand that the chosen people be set free. The Israelites wander around the desert for 40 years, no doubt building and training an army. God gives the Israelites permission to ethnically cleanse the promised land, an exercise of political violence that is used to establish the sovereignty of the Israelites. Add to this, the numerous times God exercises political violence in relation to the Israelites who rebel against God. So if the sovereign God commits, threatens, or permits political violence, then it is just. We read, shall not the judge of the earth do right? The sovereign then can set, cast aside laws and not be held accountable because the sovereign state of exception exceeds any notion of justice, which means that those who commit political violence in the name of the sovereign need have no accountability or remorse. Closely related to the foundation of political violence vis-a-vis -vis sovereignty are relations of subordination and subjugation. All, including the sovereign classes, are subordinate to the sovereign. The elders who pled with Samuel, from my eisegetical interpretation, were not asking to change patri the patriarchal order, per se, but to move power and privileges of male sovereignty to males in general and small group of men in particular. Like Aristotle's polis, women and children are subordinate and subordination is but one small step to subjugation. Subordination and subjugation can be further understood in light of the comments about dwelling above. In a polis, the subordinate and subjugated classes do not obtain the same kind of political recognition as those in the sovereign classes, which means the apparatuses that support recognition undermine the self-esteem, self-confidence, and self-respect of subordinate and sub subjugated others. This, in turn, means that subordinated folks have less political agency to speak and act together in public political spaces and less resources to dwell. Worse, in many cases, direct political violence can be used by the sovereign classes to ensure subordination and subjugation, denying people political agency, civic care, and civic faith. Orlando Patterson, for instance, used the term social death to refer to the treatment of slaves and later freed African-Americans, the treatment of excluding and marginalizing African-Americans to maintain the sovereignty of white supremacy. A subordinated and subjugated African-Americans are denied civic faith and care. As Nancy Fraser and Axel Honeth note, 
Systemic political misrecognition accompanies maldistribution of societal resources, undermining political dwelling of marginalized and oppressed persons. There is a related inherent aspect of sovereignty and its relations to subordination and subjugation. Sovereignty attends geographical boundaries and identity and is exclusionary. Aristotle recognized that women, children, slaves, and barbarians are part of the polis, but they are excluded from political life. This means civic care and civic faith are diminished with regard to marginalized and oppressed classes. Put differently, those who inhabit the subordinate classes receive care and trust to the extent they remain subordinate. If they do not, they are a threat to the illusions of the dominant sovereign classes and political violence or the threat of political violence is used to quell this threat. Of course, the ultimate form of exclusion, carelessness and perfidy is political execution sanctioned by the sovereign and sovereign classes. And here we might recall uh, the execution of Socrates or Jesus or countless uh, enslaved persons. Again, we see the relationship between sovereignty and varied forms of exclusionary violence. Exclusion also entails those who are outside the political geographical boundaries. At best, they are strangers who merit care and trust, but most of the time, they are constructed as threats or enemies. Uh, Carl Schmitt's friend-enemy distinction. This exclusionary aspect of sovereignty is inextricably joined to supreme power, the state of exception, and the exercise of political violence. Now, so far I've been talking about human beings. Yet sovereignty and the relations of subordination and subjugation, as well as political violence, extend to other species in the earth. In scripture, we read that God gives dominion over, over the earth, and while people can interpret this as mean being good stewards, the reality is that dwelling of other species is subordinate to human dwelling. And in many cases, uh, other species are subordinate in the interest of hu serving human desires and needs. In Western political philosophies and theologies, as Giorgio Agabin points out, more than human species and the earth are excluded from questions and realities of political dwelling. Or, if included, are instrumentally used for the benefit of human sovereignty and human dwelling. This view of subordination and instru instrumental treatment of species is evident in the sciences as well. Centuries ago, Francis Bacon claimed that the practical aim of improving humanity's lot or dwelling depends on increased understanding and control of nature. Today, this is evident in factory farms, experimental use of other species, attempts at geoengineering and the demise of habitats for the sake of capitalistic profiteering. As Jonathan Schnell comments, if we conquer nature, we will find ourselves among the defeated. In brief, sovereignty entails the following features. The state of exception, wherein the sovereign can set aside laws and is not bound by the law. Political violence, relations of subordination and subjugation, and exclusivity in terms of geography and identity. Let me stress, restress three other points. First, as stated earlier, the sovereign does not and cannot exist without sovereign classes and the social, political, and economic apparatuses that produce both. 
Second, these apparatuses, which includes theologies, essentialize or ontologize sovereignty as being absolutely necessary for human dwelling, for human belonging, while placing othered human beings and more than human species in subordinate or subjugated roles, denying them recognition and resources. Put another way, the apparatuses of sovereignty produce, maintain, and legitimate the illusion that sovereignty is essential for human dwelling. And when this illusion is threatened, there is a great hue and cry of heresy and anarchy. Third, there is a kind of narcissism that tends sovereignty. And when seen in terms of other species in the earth, this, nar this narcissism is known as anthropocentrism. All creation, many believe, is in the service of human dwelling, as if human beings are the pinnacle or center of the created order. Sovereignty as essential to human belonging has been going on for millennia without any apparent problems to the earth and most other species. Yet the historical data associated with climate change reveals that sovereignty when yoked to hegemonic systems such as capitalism, imperialism, and nationalism is incredibly destructive to other human beings, other species in the earth. This revelation can propel us to reimagine theologically and philosophically the question and answers of dwelling. As Clayton Crockett contends, we need to experiment radically with new ways of thinking and living because the current paradigm is in the state of exhaustion, depletion, and death. Now, I want to claim without providing an argument that sovereignty is, is strictly a human concern or issue that is projected onto God. And that, God, and that sovereignty is inextricably tied to class and classism. Whenever the issue of sovereignty emerges, one should inquire as to who benefits with regard to the question of human dwelling. As suggested this evening, it is the dwelling of the sovereign and sovereign classes that takes priority, whether we are dealing with a specific iteration of sovereignty or human dominion over nature. So if human beings can attribute sovereignty to God while privileging others, ourselves, we can also imagine a non-sovereign God who does not affirm the dominion of human beings over other human beings, other species in the earth. Positively stated, the infinite, indeterminate care of God for creation shatters the illusion of human sovereignty and anthropocentrism. If we play with this idea of a non-sovereign God, a question might, or might be raised about what this might look like for human dwelling in the Anthropocene age. Let me begin with what's often the most anxiety producing, and that is anarchy. This term emerged during the time of Thomas Hobbes who associated anarchy with chaos, instability, and violence. It is believed that human political dwelling is incapable of surviving in anarchic situations. Life would be nasty, brutish, and short. Of course, Hobbes and other political philosophers who advocated for sovereignty never considered how many lives were nasty, brutish, and short as a result of sovereignty. Unlike Hobbes, the notion of anarchy was embraced by French philosopher Pierre-Joseph Proudhon in the 19th century. It, today, it retains its negative valences. The term itself, as you know, comes from the Greek and means without rule. 
Put differently, the foundation of dwelling is not dependent on the ruling, on a ruler or ruling classes. If we embrace the idea of anarchy or non-sovereignty, then the attributes of sovereignty do not hold with regard to dwelling. Anarchic belonging or dwelling then renders inoperative supremacy, perpetuity, decisionism, boundedness, absolutism, incompleteness, uh, political violence, and specialized authority and exclusive identity. Perhaps we could call this type of belonging the coming community or inoperative community, which for Giorgio Agaben is a way of belonging that does not affirm a particular identity as a condition of belonging, which suggests that civic care and civic faith are due to whomever belongs. Is there a hint of this anarchic dwelling in scripture? Let me turn to German uh, philosopher Jacob Taubes. Taubes stated that he read the epistle to the Romans as a legitimation and formation of a new social union covenant of developing an ecclesia against the Roman Empire on the one hand, and on the other hand, of the ethnic unity of the Jewish people. His interpretation of Pauline theology led him to insights that were picked up by Agaben and others. In summarizing some of his key ideas, Hartwich et al. write that the epistle to the Romans was directed against Rome and relativizes Rome's world imperialism or sovereignty and directed against Jerusalem in that it relativizes the limits of Israel's self-definition, which are founded on nomos and ethnos. Stated differently, Jesus frees himself from the determination of ethnic ties and the Roman idea of empire, which can be seen as representing what Agabin calls the coming community. Hartwich et al. explain that Paul, from Taub's perspective, doesn't oppose a political theology of the Torah to the Roman nomos of the earth in order to establish a new national form of rule. He fundamentally negated the law as a force of the political order. With this, legitimacy is denied to all sovereigns of this world, be they imperial or theocratic. The epistle undermines the function of the law as an ordering power, be it in the context of a political order, church order, or natural order. The Messiah then does not and cannot represent or legitimate institutions of earthly sovereignty, but can only make them irrelevant and ultimately replace them. This said, they point out that the position of Paul doesn't simply, doesn't imply any positive political form. However, the principles are identified. The ecclesia understands itself not as a self-sufficient polis that self separates itself militantly from other communities, but as a new universal world order. The new political order, they continue, is contributed by the love in its two forms, love of neighbor, which is inward love, and love of enemy, an outward love. In Anthropocene age, this coming community renders sovereignty inoperative as a condition of belonging and necessarily includes caring for other species in the earth. Recognizing that a biodiverse earth is the very condition dwelling for all life. The radical political theology that Jacob Taubes argues is present in Paul 
points to the possibility of a polis, polis that does not separate humanity and nature, does not depend on relations of subordination and servitude, does not rely on the illusions of superiority, inferiority, and human dominion, does not construct apparatuses that threaten violence, does not rely on sovereignty and law in order, for, in order to organize social political life. More positively, a radical Christian theology of dwelling for the Anthropocene age is rooted in the infinite, indeterminate care of a non-sovereign, non-privileging God. Is this view utopian? Is it practical or achievable? I think we see glimmers of inoperative or coming communities throughout history. The Dutch town of Giel has accepted those seeking help and in need of dwelling for centuries. Robert Owens in the ONI community in the 19th century, the commune Niederkfaugen in Germany, various eco-villages in US, Japan, Canada, New Zealand, and elsewhere are attempts to dwell more inclusively and without the preoccupation of human or divine sovereignty. Will, this, will these be enough to make a difference with regard to the trajectory of climate change? I doubt it. Considering that a cursory glance at history reveals that uh, these communities never seem to make a dent in the apparatuses of sovereignty. The belief in sovereignty as an existential or ontological foundation for human dwelling appears impervious because of the embeddedness in Abraham Abrahamic religious polities and Western political philosophies that undergird the notion of the uh, nation state. Add to this a seeming insurmountable resistant nation states and their apparatuses that embody new forms of capitalistic imperialism. If Jacob Taubes was correct about Paul's early Christian communities, I suspect that members of these communities did not expect that their way of dwelling would stop or diminish the sovereignty of the Roman Empire or undermine the ethos of Jewish communities. In my imagination, they did expect to dwell together as a witness and incarnation of a non-sovereign God's infinite, indeterminate, non-privileging care for creation and all human beings. Perhaps today we might bear witness and incarnate this care despite the many obstacles we face and despite the possibility of human extinction. Here I conclude with a quote attributed to Martin Luther. If I knew the world was going to end tomorrow, I would plant an apple tree today. Thank you.